You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. I've got author Dana Thomas on the program today. I'm very excited to have her. Uh, She's the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion. She's also written a couple of other uh, books that have been uh, reviewed by lots of different people as being great books. I haven't had a chance to read those. Uh, She's also the host of The Green Dream, a podcast, and uh, the European sustainability editor of British Vogue. Um, And uh, so Dana is going to talk to us a lot about this fast fashion industry, which is a huge industry, $2.4 trillion and growing. Some of the richest people in the world are, uh, you know, being fed by this fast fashion industry. We've got um, Zara, uh, one of the the billionaire owner of that, is worth I don't know sixty, eighty, hundred billion dollars. And LVMH, uh, now that's not exactly fast fashion, but it is fashion. So uh, you know, is feeding this empire. Um, so I'm I'm very excited to have Dana on the program. Tell us about uh, what she's doing and what she's uncovered in looking at uh, the fast fashion industry. Welcome, Dana. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us uh, a little bit of your journey of of how you uh, you came to the fashion industry and and then what kind of opened your mind as to uh, the potential downfall of of uh, this fast fashion, you know, trend that we've had. Well, as it happens, I got into the fashion industry, not on my own, but with the help of my father, who wanted me to be a model. So I was a model as a teenager in and in, until I was 21 in Philadelphia, New York, Paris, and Milan. And when I'd finished that, I thought it was done and I would go to college and I did and take the money and pay for college and study journalism and politics. I wanted to be a White House correspondent and work at the Washington Post or the New York Times. And I got to the Washington Post while I was still in school because I studied in Washington, D.C. And uh, and was working on the national desk as the news aide, the kid who answers the phones and run back then ran phone messages back to people because it was before there was voicemail, if you can imagine. And uh, the fashion editor in the style section of the Washington Post heard that there was a former model working as a news aide on the national desk who spoke French and Italian, and she needed a new assistant. So she tapped me to come work for her for the summer. And it was a strange sensation because I'd always thought the modeling thing was its own weird, it was a means to an end. And when it was over, it was over. And then I was going to go off and do this other thing. And it turned out that the the two ideas, the two passions, or the two things I knew, which was writing or, and journalism, and the fashion world in Paris and Milan especially, fit together in a newspaper environment. So I worked with Nina Hyde, that was her name, for um, on and off for about two years. She, um, her assistant came back and then went on leave again. And so I worked, I filled in for about two years. And then I helped, after Nina passed away from breast cancer, I was doing the the fashion coverage for about a year and, um, and really got into it in a way that I didn't anticipate. But what the beauty of what Nina taught me was that it wasn't about hem lengths and heel heights that it was about politics, business, sociology, life, 
And so, in fact, though I wanted to be a political reporter, in the end, I kind of still am a political reporter, or at least a social anthropologist. And I always loved anthropology, too. So I followed this path and I moved to Paris. I married a Frenchman and moved to Paris. And when I got to Paris, it just made sense for me to continue to cover fashion, along with things that were happening in France for The Washington Post and then later for Newsweek magazine out of the Paris Bureau. And I, you know, when there was big news, like when Princess Diana was killed, I worked on that story. And when, you know, the Pope came to town, I worked on that story. And when the presidential election happened, I worked on that story because it was a bureau and we all contributed to anything. But I also carved out the fashion beat. And it was a time when the fashion industry was changing from small family owned and run companies to global publicly traded corporations. You mentioned LVMH in the introduction. That was one of these groups that was forming. And there was another one now called Caring that started out as Gucci Group. And they were starting to grow and go go global. When I first started covering fashion, you know, Louis Vuitton had something like, I think it had two stores in Paris and Nice. And then it was in some department stores. And suddenly they're, you know, today they're 400 or 500. I don't know how many stores there are, hundreds and hundreds of Louis Vuitton stores. So, you know, it was a time when these businesses were becoming brands instead of houses. And then they were going global instead of being very European and European centric or being Paris and the Cote d'Azur and, the, and you know, and, and Milan and London and New York. But that was about it. And uh, And I followed this and traced this evolution of the business week by week in Newsweek magazine. And I eventually took all that reporting for my first book, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. And then my second book, Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano was about how the business really impacted the creative side. The business asked, the business corporatization impacted the creative side of fashion. And to a degree that, you know, designers were killing themselves or drinking themselves to death or cracking up, cracking up quite simply, because they weren't trained to be business managers. They were trained to be, they were artists. So, um, and then this third book came to me while I was working, you know, I was still writing and now, and I now write for, and I've I've written for the New York times for years as well. Uh, And then I joined um, Vogue about two years ago in British Vogue, but, um, I I wrote this book because I could my job has always been, you know, at, from the newspapering aspect, looking to see what's coming next, what's next in the what's on the horizon. Um, not always just the news like what happened today, but I have to try to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow or two weeks from now or six months from now. And 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 I have my radar up and I have doing my reporting and I'm figuring out trends before they happen. Uh, some people call this a, being a futurist. Some people call this a trend forecaster. I'm not paid as well as those those jobs. <laughs> but I essentially that's what I do, and um, and so I did that for the book because I could see that climate change eventually was going to come to the fashion industry. That the fashion industry had kind of ignored it and been immune to that whole movement, just like the digital revolution slowly came to the media after it decimated film and music and all these other, uh, you know, humanities like uh, areas of business. Well, the same thing, climate change hadn't come to fashion yet. And fashion has a huge imprint on planet and people, as we like to say, you know, that what from, you know, cotton fields all the way to, you know, throwing out your clothes when you're done with them. And 
uh, you know, the materials that are used, the way people are treated, the factories, the uh, the shipping, the vast volume of clothes. And I was reading up on this and I was reading stories about reshoring and I was reading stories, you know, then the big factory collapse in Bangladesh happened where more than 2000 people were killed. And this all just sort of culminated into this book, uh, Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. It really does uh, encompass the whole thing. And basically what I found is the, you know, as the French say, the plus ça change, the more that changes, the more it stays the same. That what we have today happening in Bangladesh and Vietnam and in Honduras and Mexico and, you know, these these um, far-flung low-cost labor markets, Cambodia and Myanmar, is exactly what we had in Manchester in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Cheap labor, terrible working conditions, all for the profit of a couple of a handful of people who make wild, wildly wild amounts of money. And we forgot, we forget, you know, when we think of, we talk of the industrial revolution, we think about steam engines and we think about steam, you know, and, you know, like the, the motorized part of it. Right. But it began with cotton weaving and then moved into clothing. And from there, then we got trains and ships and you know steam engines and and all the rest of it but it began with clothing cotton in manchester england that's why it was called cottonopolis and thus the name of my book fashionopolis and we've just followed up from that ever since you know like the triangle factory fire in the early 20th century we have fires still in bangladesh factories clothing factories today it it seems like you know it just it it doesn't change, it just moves. And that's what I wanted to show with the book. And if we really want to change it, we're going to have to work hard at it. Well, uh, you know, thank you for giving us the whole kind of breadth of a your career and how it's kind of uh, gone in a parallel path to the fashion industry. You know, they, I, I love the part about uh, LVMH, uh, was two stores uh, back when you started your beat, and now it's 400. It's a behemoth Gucci, the same thing as we all saw in the movie House of Gucci. You know, yes. it went from a very uh, small operation to big, big business. Same thing, Christian Dior. Uh, yes. That that movie kind of uh, shows the arc of, uh, you know, a brilliant designer and kind of being eaten alive by by the system that was created, the big business that it became. And uh, and uh, I, I, I love how it all ties into uh, something very, very uh you know, relatable to everybody on the planet. We all wear clothes. We so. all wear clothes. What? So first thing we say to ourselves in the morning, so what am I going to wear today? Unless, of course, you go to maybe a school with uniforms, but otherwise, or even, you have a uniform. But even if you have a uniform, you still figure out which pair of shoes you're going to wear. What am I going to wear today? Right. And the people who wear uniforms are constantly trying to alter them to try to make them look different and cooler and whatever. So, you know, it's all uh, it's all tied together. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to asking you a ton of other questions. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, for those uh, who are listening in, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter. And I've got uh, Dana Thomas, who's the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion. We'll be back in just one minute to talk to Dana.
You're listening to a climate change. Uh, I've got Dana Thomas, who's the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion. And, uh, you know, great reviews on the book. The New York Times book review said fascinating. We'll engage not only the fashion set, but also those interested in economics, human rights and climate policy. So that's a, a pretty good take by the New York Times. Well done. Uh, uh, let me ask you a little bit about that. Why is uh, fashion so important to economics, human rights and climate policy? Well, Fashion is important because it is an enormous business. One out of six people on the planet somehow work in the fashion industry. That's a lot, right? I mean, that's all the way from people who are picking, growing, farming cotton to Naomi Campbell. Okay, let's like <laughs> show that this isn't just, you know, people making your clothes, but also modeling them, photographing them, selling them. But that's still, it's a gigantic industry. I think it's up to now, I in the few years since I wrote the book, it's grown so much. I think it's now not far from $3 trillion a year in sales. And, you know, we produce 100 billion garments a year, but we only sell 80 billion. 20 billion are thrown away before they ever even hit the shop floor. So that gives you an idea of the, the breadth, the size of the, com- the industry, and but also the wastefulness of it the intentional wastefulness of it, that they overproduce all for the sake of profit, you know, the idea of economies of scale. But how can you be, how can that be economic if you're intentionally throwing away 20% of everything you make? That feels like a very bad business practice. I mean, talk about waste. I've heard that uh, H&M has so much waste that it has a, 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 play, a facility, I think in Sweden, where they burn all oh, these yeah. uh, products that they uh, don't use to power, you know, the f- generate power. So yeah, that yeah. just tells you the magnitude of the amount of uh, product that is going to waste. Yeah. And it seems these criminal. These companies also, yeah, well, they also criminal. dump them. Right. It yeah. seems criminal that they don't kind of just give some of that away, given that, you know, there are probably many people around the world that could use those garments. Uh, and instead, they burn them. Well, they're, the the world is awash in clothes right now. They don't know what to do with all the clothes because we now buy five times more clothes than we did a generation ago. And yet we spend five, one-fifth the amount of money that we used to spend in the family budget on those clothes. Now, I'm terrible at, at algebra. You know, the, the train's leaving the station <laughs> at different times and going in different directions. I can't do that. But even with my very bad algebra, to be buying five times more clothes with only one-fifth the amount of budget shows you how cheap clothes have gotten and how many we have. And what do we do if we're buying so many is we throw them away. And we well, give them a, away to charity, but they go to places like Africa. Africa's awash in our clothes so much they don't want any more. They, <laughs> they don't know what to do with them. They're dumped into deserts. They're thrown into the sea. They're everywhere. If we stopped making clothes today, we'd still have enough clothes out there to wear new clothes until 2050. Wow. So that's, that is really the problem is that uh, it's a problem of abundance that we have all gotten richer as, as citizens of the planet is a wealthier place than it was uh, 50 years ago. And I think that's uh, 
you know, you can see that evidence by one fifth of our budget is needed to buy a close. No, one fifth uh, of what we used to spend of what we used to spend, because so it used to be like it used to be in the double digits, sort of like, you know, say 20 percent or 18 percent of our budget every year was dedicated to close. And now it's like three or four. Right. So it's we can tiny afford sliver. Right. And, and we're buying five times more clothes with that tiny sliver of money. Right. Well, in in part because the budget has grown, uh, you know, if you take a $10,000 earning uh, person now, they're making $100,000, um, you know, three or four percent of that is is roughly the same or more than what you had with 10% of a $10,000 budget, which would be $1,000. So you have more dollars to spend on it, just like on food. Uh, we spend a much smaller percentage of our incomes on food because we are richer. So we can we have much more disposable income so people can afford to waste more. I mean, it's obviously has it repercussions in all this waste. And, and the, the question- clothes have also never been cheaper than they are today. I had sort of an aha moment when I was working on the book where I was reading an article from the 1940s, I think it was 1940, um, right before the war, about the famous retailer, Hattie Carnegie. And she was in New York, in New York City selling clothes to the wealthy women. And during the Depression, when the stock market crashed and all those people lost all that money, she had to come up with a new line of clothes that was more affordable. Now, at the time of of the Depression in the 1920s, she was selling Paris Originals from Chanel, and, and we still know today, Scap, um, who else was making clothes in uh, Poiré, a couple other houses like that, that she was selling them, and they were selling for those Paris Originals in New York at her store for between $900 and $3,000 a piece to women, these gowns. That's about what you spend today wow. at Chanel for a dress for a, a ready, a beautiful, a beautiful dress. And, uh, and so then Hattie Carnegie said, well, okay, so everyone lost their shirts in the, in the, in the crash and they can't afford my clothes. What should we do? So she came up with a, a, a sort of more accessible, affordable line called, um, uh, it was something sport. It had to, it was like, basically, you know, Lauren Bacall in like, in in one of those Bogart movies where she's the big sleep and she's in one of those smart little suits, you know, Raymond Chandler called the Hattie Carnegie suits, the secretary special, you know, it was a nice handsome, a nice looking suit, but it wasn't anything fancy. And it cost between 1999 and 24.99 about what you'd pay today at Zara H and M and, you know, and any of these other fast fashion companies. Now that was at the height of the depression and we're paying the same price for clothes. I feel like that sort of tells you everything. I went, oh, when they say the clothes have never been cheaper than they are today, that's because they're well, the same price as they were a hundred years ago. That's well, crazy, right? Well, now, I, I guess the economist in me uh, will have to jump out and say, well, that $19 back in 1930 would be worth $190 or more in today's money. But so still- that shows how cheap it is today. Right, which shows how cheap it is today. So yeah, the um, so yeah, your point is is well made. That uh, and why is it so cheap? Because labor is so cheap. Because they've moved all the during globalization, they moved the labor offshore. 
to places where they don't, where companies don't have to pay any sort of benefits. They don't have to pay vacation. They don't have to pay overtime. They don't have to pay um, anything because they're just contractors. They don't have to build the factories. They don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. And they don't, and they, and the, the wages are, you know, the workers are paid half a living wage. And when I was in Bangladesh, the workers were making $68 a month. Well, that's a month. Right. Well, and at I the would time, say. Zara, and at the time, Zara's owner was worth $68 billion. Well, <laughs> that kind of shows the difference. And when they talk about the division of wealth, there's a very good snapshot of division of wealth. And yes, it's Bangladesh's the cost of living is less, but it was factor figured it was calculated by economists that $68 a month was half of what a living wage in Bangladesh that they should have been making about $130 a month in order to be able to house clothe and feed their families without you know freaking out that they can't make you know even basic and they you know workers were living in shanties and uh and they have their kids sleeping under factory table floor you know tables because they can't afford to send them to school and you know they don't have, they don't have how you know, childcare. I mean, come on, they don't even have healthcare. So, and then, right. and so that's where the, the companies have cut their prices and raised their profits to such a staggering amount that, you know, six of the wealthiest pe- top 50 people in the world today own fashion companies. And the only other sector that has such a high amount in that, in that top 50 is tech. Right. Well, another factor that has so you get really rich making cheap clothes. Right. Another factor that has gone into this, and and uh, because I live in Los Angeles and I've uh, you know been involved in the fashion industry from having clients uh, who owned fashion uh, houses and and also uh, clients that worked at them and um, the machinery has gotten so sophisticated that you don't need as much labor so that there are many more, you know, much more sophisticated machines that spit out these clothes, um, you know, without almost any human involvement. So well, that's in Los Angeles, but that would not be in the case in Cambodia and Myanmar and Vietnam and Bangladesh. I can promise you. They're right, just but the old fashioned sewing machines like we've had since the 19th century. Right. But the the point being that it's uh, possible to knock out these clothes much more cheaply than ever. And, you know, and that creates an environmental disaster as well as uh, many other problems, uh, such as labor problems, as you had had uh, rightly pointed to. Um, And one of the things that we should be thinking from a public policy standpoint is to say to countries that are importing uh, goods to the United States that we they should take into consideration paying their workers a living wage because obviously it's not fair to say American uh, workers to have be competing against uh, literally sweatshops uh, they should at least pay a living wage wherever the the uh, products are coming from Exactly, exactly. And because we're making such cheap clothes and we're buying five times more than we did a generation ago, the impact on the planet is enormous because we have so much leftover clothing and we have no place to put it. 
Well, so let's talk about that. And let's, um, when we get back from the break, you're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, my guest, Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion. And we'll be right back to talk to Dana about how fast fashion is uh, impacting the planet. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, and I've got Dana Thomas, author of the book Fashionopolis, a New York Times bestseller, The Price of Fast Fashion. So, Dana, uh, we've talked to, talked to a bit about uh, a lot of different issues. Let's talk uh, just about the pollution aspect yes. of fast fashion and what is the cost of it. And you alluded to the cost of pollution. You know, cotton being a polluting crop you know those of us kind of who think oh we're buying cotton it's it's good it's natural it's you know it's organic uh maybe uh maybe the organic stuff is better tell us a little bit about the effect of cotton on the environment well uh cotton can't cotton should be and can be a wonderful product and that doesn't hurt the environment in fact is is the right answer for times when we need a crop that will grow in poor soil. Uh, cotton has been with us for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's been domesticated thousands of years ago. We've had it in clothing. You know, the Romans were using cotton, you know, for their robes and and the Egyptians were growing cotton. You know, it's it's been around for a while. Um, but it's been so, sort of manhandled and corrupted in the last, let's say, 50 years. Um, first by, uh, through, and, and definitely since the war, since World War II with the, um, industrial farming of, of all things and, and relying on fertilizer to boost the soil and boost your crops until your soil is so broken, you, you can't grow anything in it. But cotton was always the, the crop you could plant when you couldn't grow anything else because it likes to be stressed and it doesn't need water naturally. If you think about where cotton is grown, it likes hot weather. It likes it, it likes drought. It likes dry. It, it's grown in Texas. It's grown in Arizona. It's grown in India. It's grown in in Egypt. You know, it's grown in really dry, hot places. And what happens is when it gets stressed, that's when it blo- it blooms and the bowl, the cotton ball, is is called B O L L, is the bloom, and that's the cotton. But you know. At, Genetic engineers got a hold of cotton and started messing with it. And they've made it, you know, yes, they've made it bug resistant or, you know, pest resistant, I should say, and um, and disease resistant. But they also started finagling the, the genetic makeup of it. So it started producing six times more cotton per plant than it would organically. And then if you're planting six times more cotton, then they also made it to do that. It required water. So suddenly it became known as a thirsty plant, when in fact it's the least thirsty of them all naturally. So organic cotton is fantastic, but conventional cotton, which is what most clothes are made of today, is highly toxic. It's hard on the soil. It's hard on the water table. And then it's treated with defoliants so that they can pick it easier, that the leaves fall off. It's treated with loads of herbicides and pesticides. And so in the end, when it's picked, conventional cotton, for each kilo of cotton we'll say a pound uh you need a pound 
of chemicals. It like it requires a pound of chemicals to produce a pound of cotton, which is that pretty, is mind blowing. It's pretty toxic, right? That's just bad for everything and everybody. And there's terrible stories about cotton farmers having cancer and, you know, and, and ugh. I mean, if you start really digging down into it, it gets very grim. And meanwhile, organic cotton is so much more, you know, it's such a better product. The, the, the quality of the cotton is so much, I mean, you put on a cotton, an organic cotton shirt, you feel the difference instantly. The, it's just a better, it's a better material. It was interesting when I was working on the book, Stell McCartney said, well, if client, if organic cotton seen as a luxury, then why aren't luxury brands only sourcing organic cotton? Well, the answer is it's because it's more expensive and that profits are their most, you know, their raison d'etre and not and not making luxury products, but profits. It's all about profits. So, you know, today only one percent of all cotton is organic, which is kind of crazy considering a hundred years ago, well, maybe we'll say 120 years ago, all cotton was organic, you know. So we've really sort of taken this ancient ancient material and turned it into you know a franken a franken textile um and we and there's a big movement in the slow fashion business the slow fashion movement which is a bit you know a reaction to the fast fashion industry to bring organic cotton to the forefront and really make it see you know give it the the respect it needs to honor it and to really start making it um, part of the, the the supply chain again. Well, I think that uh, we as consumers can certainly demand that and just buy only organic cotton products, and that will send a message. So all of us out there that are listening, you should be looking at the tags, making sure you tags. Make sure that you're getting organic cotton, and then as investors, anybody who's investing money in you know companies should be asking the companies they invest in to uh, to produce organic cotton products, and Absolutely. we should be pushing for that. And and in the organizations that you work for, uh, you know, tell them, hey, the uniform should be organic cotton so that it goes up and down the supply chain and also talk to our legislature and 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 tell them hey for the government uh workers they should be you know getting their products organically so then that creates the marketplace for these uh for the for the manufacturers that are doing the right thing so that they kind of literally and figuratively seed the ground with with good public policy yeah. The other very impactful material, which is everywhere, of course, is polyester and its and its cousins, uh, nylon and spandex and lycra. These are all petroleum based uh, textiles and fab cloth. And they were made they were invented during the war, right before the war, 1930s, 40s. And at the time, we're seen as a as a genius idea because it was the war. It was the period of the war when silk was being used for parachutes and for thread for in hospitals for, you know, stitching up wounds and polyester, nylon. These were silk. These were synthetic silk like materials. So then we could be making clothes out of these synthetic silks while using the real stuff for hospitals during the war. Um, but 
the petroleum at the time we thought, oh, we got loads of petroleum and nobody really thought about the impact like we did didn't think about it with with uh, automobiles either. The impact that the that fossil fuels have on the environment, first drilling and digging it out, but then also the carbon impact uh, when we use it and polyester, nylon and and these other petroleum based synthetics. What happens is first they don't like plastic because they are essentially plastic don't biodegrade i mean they say it takes a thousand years but is anyone going to be here in a thousand years to check i don't think so so (laughs) we're thinking it's going to take a thousand years i i'm betting they don't ever biodegrade um and then the second thing is that when we wash them they release microfibers little tiny plastic microfibers into the wash now you say oh how many could that be how about 700,000 microfibers per normal load of laundry? Wow. Wow, right? Nearly a million <laughs> microfibers every time you do your you wash your your gym clothes, your your stretchy sweat wicking uh t-shirt, your you know pant your stretchy lycra spandexy pants your fleece top, your fleece jacket, microfibers. And the microfibers have washed out into our water systems, of course, and are found in lakes and rivers and fish and shellfish. But now there have been studies that have found it in the ice in Antarctica and in the Arctic. Microfibers are now found to be floating in the air. There was a study that said that microfibers are floating like an immense, one of the worst pull, part of pollution in the city of London, just from people wearing fleece and walking down the street. They're releasing microfibers in the air. Microfibers are in the rain in the Rockies. So if you have a, a, a organic garden, you know, you can do all you want, but it's going to have this thin layer of plastic on top. So, and of course now it's been found in our, in our bloodstreams because we're drinking the microfibers, we're breathing the microfibers, we're eating the fish that have the microfibers. So we got to figure out how to get off. I mean, we talk about trying to, you know, we're going to have EVs for cars. So we're going to not have gasoline powered engines anymore. Eventually nobody has really thought about how we're going to get petroleum out of fashion. It's a much bigger impact than anyone realized. Obviously, the what you just uh, described is a parade of horribles in terms of how it's affecting our water, our air. I've certainly read that we have all of us about a credit card size amount of plastic in our in our bodies at any point in time, which is just mind boggling that we could have that much plastic uh, in our system. Yeah. So so how do we get out of this conundrum? Uh, How do we. Uh, wean ourselves off this uh, petroleum-based clothing items? Well, there are lots of solutions being being dreamed up for replacements of these fabrics and also how to regenerate them instead of, you know, drilling more oil to make more polyester and then throwing it into landfill, taking those clothes that would go into landfill and recycling them and using them for other things or regenerating them into clothes, but hopefully that aren't going to release too many microfibers. Um, But first we have to wean ourselves off of virgin petroleum-based fabrics and then, and figure out how to use up the ones that we have circulating in the planet. If you burn them, they melt and release toxic air, you know, poisons in the air. So that's not a solution either. 
And, but eventually we just have to stop making this stuff and stop using it and go back to the great uh, natural materials that we've worn since the dawn of time. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion, and also the host of The Green Dream, a podcast that you can find on all the major podcast channels. We'll be back in just one second. You're listening to Climate Change. I've got Dana Thomas, author of Fashionopolis, on the program. And Dana, just uh, kind of in our last segment, want to talk about living in the solution and and what uh, what can we do to to change course, change direction, and to pull ourselves out of uh, this situation regarding fast fashion and and wasting clothes and polluting our environment. Well, as I said, we can go back to some of the natural materials that we've been wearing since the dawn of time. For example, linen. Linen is one of these beautiful fabrics that, yes, it requires a lot of ironing unless you embrace the wrinkle, but it's a rain-fed crop. We don't have to water it. It grows really easily. It is not susceptible to, to pests like like some product, you know, some crops are. And, uh, and so fashion is pivoting towards using linen again. Hemp is another solution, uh, a beautiful material that grows very easily and is plentiful and makes, you know, a, a crop that grows easily and makes a very beautiful material. There's wool. Did you know today that wool only makes up about 1% of all fabric? Wow. I know, right? And uh, and polyester, which we were talking about earlier, is two, is in two-thirds of our clothes. Two-thirds of all clothes made today contain polyester, that plastic that never biodegrades, burnt, melts into toxic nastiness and emits mi- microfibers. It, it, two-thirds of our clothes have that in it. And then there's nylon, too, and spandex and lycra and neoprene. But only 1% is wool. And wool is, you know, been like like cotton, worn, you know, by the, since the dawn of, you know, the the... In in Alexander the Great's warriors were wearing wool, you know, like it's been around forever and it was let serving me, them well, so it can serve us well. Let me so ask you though, you know, let me ask you on the on the wool front in terms of uh, all the animals there and the production of methane uh, from from that uh, has has that been studied and and measured as to- I don't know. That's its own. That's a very deep subject I've gotten into somewhat, but what I do know is that. Uh, for example, in the UK, um, because there is not enough of a demand for wool in the supply chain, that the wool that is sheared from the sheep, because they need to be sheared, um, for the sheep that are being produced for meat, that wool is just burned. It's not even used for sweaters because there's no demand for it. That's so incredible. that's incredible, right? So we have enough sheep to give us enough wool to make enough sweaters to to without adding to, it wouldn't be adding to the production of sheep or the ranching or farming of sheep to start using more wool. We're not using the wool that we have, which is really well, a shame, I think. Yeah. Well, there's, there's also, I've, I've talked to some people. I had a guy on the show uh, a while back and he was growing kelp and they have studied that putting kelp in the animal feed yes. helps reduce methane. So, Absolutely does. 
So that's that's a way that of, this is something that's getting rolled out and being tested. I think it's a great, it's a very interesting movement and very and a and a love and a wonderful solution. But then there's other things that you know there are other great solutions like you mentioned kelp. We can use kelp. There is a company that's working uh, using algae to to make a biodegradable plastic for sequins because mm -hmm. sequins are made of petroleum-based, you know, they're petroleum-based plastics. So sequins never biodegrade. All those sequins out there, they're going to be there for the forever and ever and ever. So we're, there's a company making biodegradable sequins and biodegradable um, fabric out of algae and out of kelp. And then there's another company that's making, um, that's growing dye out of um, bacteria or out of, you know, growing or using natural dyes as well going back to natural dyes as opposed to chemical dyes. And where this is the most important is in the blue jean business, because 99% of our blue jeans today are dyed with synthetic indigo, which was only invented in the late 19th century, but synthetic indigo. Uh, and again, natural indigo has been around since, you know, the Egyptians or, or even before. And uh, synthetic indigo has formaldehyde, um, cyanide, aniline, really toxic stuff in it. And we have this against our skin, the you know, our largest organ, this breathing organ, porous, and we have cyanide next to our skin. I often say when I'm talking to schools, you know, those movies where they have the cyanide pill in a ring. And if you're caught as a spy, you could take your cyanide pill and kill yourself. Or you know what? You could just eat your genes. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, um, so we're Pivoting to organic indigo, which makes the most, the natural indigo, the most beautiful blue you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it's like where it's a shimmering sapphire next to uh, uh, synthetic indigo dyed jeans. This is coming in a big way very soon. Uh, there's a company in Nashville, Tennessee called Stony Creek Colors that is who is taking natural indigo back out to an, in an industrial scale and has, is working with Levi's to introduce it into the industrial supply chain for blue jeans. So we'll have more natural indigo blue jeans available out there. And when it's dyed with cotton, nat, uh, organic cotton, now that's a beautiful pair of jeans. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, we want to pivot to. I, you know, I, I know you're familiar with this uh, company, Renew Cell, which yes. is in this circular fashion. Tell us a little bit more about circular fashion and and uh, how we can maybe support that. I was just closing my article today for British Vogue for the April issue where I talk about RenewCell. Um, RenewCell is taking um, what we call cellulosic. I, I never quite pronounced that right, but cellulose-based fabrics. So those are the other synthetics that I didn't talk about earlier, such as um, uh, rayon is cellulosic. And uh, there are a couple other ones, but rayon's the, the biggest one. And uh, and they're made from tree pulp. They cut down trees. Well, as the head of Canopy explained it, they to make these fabrics, you log the tree, you put it into a giant blender with nasty chemicals, and you produce a pulp that is turned into fiber. And only 20 to 40% of each tree is ultimately used. 60 to 80% is waste. And they cut down millions of trees every year to make this, this fabric. Well, RenewCell has stepped up and said, listen, instead of cutting down trees to make fabric, why don't we take the fabric we already have made 
and regenerate it into new fabric. So that's what they're doing with the cellulosic fabrics. They're turning it back into virgin fabric. There's another company that I spotlight in the book called Worn Again that's taking cotton poly blends where you have shirts. You know, you how many shirts do you have where you've seen the label that says 60% polyester, 40% cotton, right? That's a cotton poly blend. So it's made the, the cotton softer, but it also just makes making that fabric cheaper because polyester is so cheap. And, uh, and they've figured out how to, as I put right in the book, divorce these fabrics, separate them, these, these two fibers, the cotton and the polyester, and then regenerate each to a virgin quality fiber to start again. And, uh, and then there's another company out in Seattle called Evernew that's doing this with cotton. Like all the old cotton jeans, sheets, towels, T-shirts, everything is being, you know, the as they call it, feedstock, it's endless, is being used, is being taken in and broken down and regenerated into virgin cotton. And they were working with Levi's. I saw the prototype of the Levi's that they made with denim made of regenerated cotton. And it was really cool. And they're working with some other companies now, too. So, you know, there's there's a way, circular fashion, the idea of it is that, uh, for the hundred years we've been, or since the beginning of the industrial revolution, quite honestly, we've been com- consuming in a what in a way that's called take, make, or make, take, take, make, uh, waste, where we take something from the earth, we make something with it, we use it, and we throw it away. Linear, and circularity is putting it back into circulation. It's you know taking from the earth making something, wearing it, using it, whatever it is. It could be anything, not just clothes. And then instead of throwing it into a landfill, we'd retake it back into the back to the system, make something else with it, use it, make something else and keep it going in a circle around and around and around instead of throwing it straight into the bin. So fashion is adopting this in many ways very, very quickly. And it this gives me great hope for the fashion industry, because while they may still be overproducing, at least they're figuring out what to do with all the leftovers or all the clothes that we've burned through so that they don't turn into a big toxic molten mess somewhere. Uh, and Or they're not just moldering in a landfill till the end of days. <laughs> Well, that would be a great uh, help. I know that uh, you do a lot in the area of empowerment of uh, mm. young women. And I, try. Uh, and I know uh, that a friend of mine gave me your book and she is a loyal university professor. She, I know she a plug. She wanted to have you speak there sometime because, uh, you know, to empower young people to to move in this direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I called the book, the book of hope and my podcast, the green dream, which is about sustainability in all areas, but you know, the try the idea of living a greener life. Um, we call that the podcast of hope, because I do believe that there, there is a way out of this. And if we just put our minds to it, we can affect change. Well, uh, I'm, I'm really glad to have you uh, on the program. Uh, you can listen to our podcast through Apple and Spotify, or you can come check out our website at climatechange.com. You can also listen to approximately 100 old episodes uh, and check out any part of the episode today that you may have missed because uh, a lot of great stuff to listen to what Dana had to share with us and check out Dana's uh, best-selling book, Fashionopolis, Why What We Wear Matters. And listen to her great podcast, The Green Dream. 
Also check out uh, her in Vogue. It's a great pleasure to have you on the on our show. Uh, you are a treasure, and it's fantastic to have you share with the audience uh, what you're doing. Merci beaucoup, Dana. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to A Climate Change. Tune back in next week. <laughs>